I tell you, as we start off this new year, I guarantee you, how many of you have already made some new resolutions? How many of you are going to lose weight this year? How many of you have already joined the gym that's going to last a week? Right? You know what I'm talking about. We all have desires and ambitions and goals and things that we've already planned for this new year. We've already got it set in our minds that there's going to be, it's a new year. And I kept seeing people post this, new year, new you. No, new year, old you, you know it. It's going to happen. But here's the truth of the matter. It's really not about getting in shape and, and losing weight and going to the gym and all these other things. What really needs to be our focus is the vision that God has for each and every one of our lives. There are certain things that God wants from you and God wants for you. And there are certain things that you need to be planning for this year. I believe you need to have a vision for your family, how you want to lead them, how you want to direct them. And man, I'm specifically talking to you. You're the leader of your homes. How are you leading your families? Are you the one that's getting these kids up, getting them ready and saying, let's go to church? Are you the one that's getting up and said, I was glad when I said, let's go into the house of the Lord? Man, you need to be leading in that way and not just leading to come to church but leading your family in bible leading them and teaching them and helping them to grow and ladies how are you doing how are you serving how are you setting the example before your children so that they want to follow your example we've got a huge responsibility in our hands when it comes to our families and kids we don't want to forget you you're not too young to be a part of this you need to have a vision for your life for how god wants you to grow and things that god wants you to do but I wonder if you've got a vision for your job. Some of you, you look at your job and you say, well, it's just the, the same old, same old. I just, you know, I go in day out, day in, day out. I work, I serve, I, I make money and I put a check in the bank and that's what I'm there for. But God has you where he wants you right now for a specific purpose. And what is that vision for you there at your job? Is there a coworker that God is wanting you to speak to? Maybe share the gospel with. Maybe the, he's got you there because he wants you to realize you're serving him while serving their work. You need to be setting that example and having a vision for your job. But you also have a vision for the church. There's a vision that we set every year where we feel like, God, we've prayed about this. God, this is where you're wanting to lead us. And we want to see God fulfill that vision in our lives. And we want to see, and we, we pray this all the time in church. We want to see revival. And the reason we talk about this is we hear about the great revivals, like the Great Awakening and the Welsh Revival, where hundreds of thousands of people are saved during these revivals. And God moves in a mighty way. And if we've ever needed him to move, we need him to move move now but when a vision of revival comes it means you have to check yourself you have to evaluate you you don't evaluate the church you don't evaluate the brother or sister sitting next to you you don't evaluate the person that's sitting all the way on the other side of the church you take time to evaluate yourself because if God is going to revive the church he's going to do it one person at a time he's not going to get you to revive somebody else he wants to revive you himself well this morning we want to talk about a vision for revival and i'm here to tell you there's three visions that we have to have for revival to occur turn with me to isaiah chapter 6 is where we're going to be at this morning and we're really going to dig in deep to this and we've got to have this vision and here's the thing if you've come in here this morning believing you've already arrived then you're not going to listen anyways but if you come in here with an open heart ready to hear from god 
I'm here to tell you, if you hear what Isaiah is saying and you hear what God says, there is no way we cannot be moved by the hand of God today. I can assure you of that. God has been speaking to me as I've been studying this passage, and I'm just blown away with so many of the things that we see in this passage. So let's talk about three visions. The first one we're going to look at is an upward vision. Every one of us needs to have an upward vision. In other words, it's how we see God. You see, many of us see God as being awful small. We, don't, we, we fear when we go through troubles and we go through tribulations and we go through difficulties and we sit back and we worry about things that are going on. I want you to understand that many Christians today has what we call LFD, little faith disorder. They have little faith because their God that they believe in is very little. Can I help you to understand something today? Your God is bigger than any troubles you'll face. Your God is bigger and mightier than any problems you'll ever come up in your life. I promise you the God that we serve is absolutely amazing. And we need to understand that. We have to have an upward vision. Look with me in verse 1 of Isaiah 6. We're going to go to verse 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Then one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. How do you see God? How do you envision God? What do you think of the one that you serve? Now, we, we sing these songs, and, and we can get all excited when we talk about the new name that's written down in heaven. But then when we get outside the church doors and we start to go through troubles, we seem to forget that the same God we just worship is the same God in the midst of our troubles. We seem to fail to realize that the God that we've been singing about and praising and praying to can handle every situation that we're going through. When we look at this, the God that we see in this picture, first we see he's exalted. Because look at verse 1, it says, he is high and lifted up. High and lifted up. That means six times this is referred to. This combination is given in the book of Isaiah, and every one of them is referring to God. And the idea that he is seated on a throne, and he is lifted up above everybody else. In other words, God is exalted. God is high and lifted up. You cannot get anybody higher and better and greater and mightier and loving and gracious as the God we serve. There is nobody as high as as our God. He is high and lifted up. And that's exactly where we need to put him. He always needs to be first in our lives. He needs to be seated on the throne of your life. I get so sick of seeing those bumper stickers that say, God is my co-pilot. No, he's not. God is not my co-pilot. God is my pilot. I'm not the co-pilot, and I'm not the backseat driver. I'm the guy that God is flying the plane. He's in control, and I just sit back and watch what he's going to do. I participate where he tells me to participate. I do what God tells me to do because the Bible tells me I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's not a matter of saying, God, you know what? We hear people sing that song, Jesus, take the wheel. You really don't mean it a lot of times. The only time you want Jesus to take the wheel is when things aren't going right. And you need Jesus to course correct. It's kind of like me. If I were driving a truck and it had a trailer on it, I promise you I'd find somebody could park a trailer. It wouldn't be me. 
It always seems that when we're in trouble, we'll find God and we'll cry out to God. God is high and lifted up at all points in your life, at all moments of your life. God should stay exalted on the throne. He is high and lifted up. But I love the rest of that verse. It says that the temple was filled with the train of his robe. Now, let me explain something to you. I didn't understand this until this week. And I thought, what a powerful illustration. You see... In the kings of that day, what would happen is if they defeated an enemy, they would take the train of the robe from their enemy and put it on as a part of theirs, showing that they had defeated and they had conquered that enemy. And so sometimes you would go into the king's throne room and they would have a long train. Some would have a short train. God's train is so huge, it consumes the temple. Now, the only time we see a train is on wedding garments. You ever seen a a bride's dress? And you see them and they're sashaying down as they're walking to here comes the bride. And as they walk down and they get, and then they've got to move and they've got to have that maid of honor who gives over the flowers, fluffs the train to make sure. God's train fills the temple so that nobody else could get into it. The idea here is he has defeated every enemy. He's defeated every problem. He's defeated everything that we've got coming our way. Our God has already won the victory. We don't have to worry about a thing. God is victorious. He's the king of kings, and there's no enemy that can defeat him. That's the God we serve. I'm telling you, man, if you don't realize the God we serve has already won, you're missing out on the victory already. God is already victorious. He's already defeated Satan. He already has a plan. He already knows what he's doing. Our names are already written down. We are saved. We are assured. We're guaranteed. Heaven is our home. This is but a tent, and I can't wait to get there. God is exalted. But look at verse 2. God is unique. It says, above him stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. You may say, well, what is that about? These six-winged creatures. These are one of the groups of the angels called seraphim. And they are unbelievably beautiful and amazing creatures. If you read Ezekiel chapter 1, you see the picture of them there. But these creatures have six wings, and with two they cover their face, and two they cover their feet. I used to wonder, I understand it's about humility, but there's something else to it. Because when you think about this, the seraphim are not fallen creatures. We understand that many of the angels fail. In fact, the Bible tells us that a third of the angels fail, according to Revelation chapter 12. But there were some angels that never fail, never sinned, never fell short. So there are some that are what? They are without sin. They're without fault. They are holy in a sense sometimes the way we look at it. So why are these seraphim, these angels, these creatures that have not fallen, these creatures that have not sinned covering their face, what do they have to be ashamed of? Well, the purpose is to show the uniqueness of God, the creature versus the creator. Even if we had not sinned, God is high and lifted up and exalted, and there's nobody like him. you got to imagine, he tells us all the time, he is the God who was, who is, and who ever will be. God has no beginning, and he has no end. He has no one that can compare to him. He has no one that's as strong as him, no one that's as wise as him. No one can counsel him. No one can direct him. No one can tell God and ask God the question, what are you doing? Because he knows what he's doing. He's never out of control. He never runs out of power. He never gets tired. He never takes a break. Never needs a vacation the God we serve is unique and he's not like any other God this world has created and the seraphim understood that as they covered their face 
But it says with two wings, they cover their feet. The reason being is they want to show honor and reverence to the God they're worshiping. They want to exalt the one who's seated on the throne. They want to praise him. They can't even peer at his appearance because his appearance is so majestic and holy and unique. Our God is exalted. Our God is unique and our God is holy. Look at verse 3. And they cried one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There's speculation as to why they declare holy three times. Some say, well, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the Trinity. But I'll be honest with you, what this is, is they're giving the superlative. And if you remember anything in English growing up, you remember that there are superlatives. You go from good to better to best. So the idea here in holy, 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 what the angels are declaring is, God, you're not only holy, for you are holy, but you are holier than anything and anyone, and you are the holiest of all. There is no... No one as holy as God. In fact, when you see it in the scriptures, according to Isaiah, our righteousness is as filthy rags. If we were to stand before the sharp starkness of God and his holiness, and we were to stand there before him, I promise you, you would look as filthy as filthy could be. You would not be able to stand in the presence of the holy God. These angels declare holy, 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 because God is first and foremost. He's perfect. He is without sin. He's untainted. He's untouched by sin. He cannot be deceived he cannot lie he cannot fall short he's the god we serve he is holy man there's something amazing about that characteristic of god but not only is god exalted not only is god unique not only is god holy god is near says the whole earth is full of his glory you got to think about this for a second because if you look at the gods of this world the man-made gods there's a couple problems with them. One, they're either so high and exalted that you can't reach them. You can't get to them. That's the God of the Muslim God, Allah, who is no God at all. I'll just go ahead and say that. He's no God at all. But the way they make this God is they declare he's so high and exalted that there's no guarantee that anybody can go into his presence because he has no personal relationship with any of them. When that happens, then what's the purpose of serving him? Because there's no guarantee of going to be with him and live with him forever. Nobody, not even suicide bombers are guaranteed that. If they think they are, they go in one fire and come out in another. But you think about this, there's another one that says that God is in everything. God is in this pulpit and God is in this floor. And all of a sudden they feel that God is in them and that we all become a part of the Godhead. Let me explain something to you. God is greater and mightier than all of these things. My God is not in inanimate objects, but his Holy Spirit dwells within us. Our God is high and lifted up, but yet he is near at heart. He is right here with us. He did not leave us alone. In fact, he showed it by sending his son to die on a cross for your sins and mine. Our God is near. He's not standing back waiting for you to cry out. Our God a lot of times is already working in your situation before you even cry out. In fact, there are sometimes you don't even know how to pray when your situation is going on. But the Holy Spirit is praying for you, Romans chapter 8. That doesn't mean you shouldn't pray. It means you should pray even more. Because your God is in control. Your God knows what he's doing. Your God is holy. He's exalted. He is high and lifted up. And I'm here to tell you, the God that we serve, there's no one like him. There's nobody like him. If we have a vision of who God is and we understand his holiness, I'm here to tell you, when we begin to experience and utter the worship that God deserves from our lips and we give him the praise and we exalt him as we should, I promise you we'll begin to see revival begin in our hearts. 
We've got to have an upward vision. But look at verse 4. It says, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. We see what happens when unfallen creatures are in his presence. What about inanimate objects? The whole temple was shaken. The whole temple was shaken. It reverberates with the praise of God. Isn't it amazing that everything in this world gives glory to God? When we go out and we see creation, it gives glory to God. In fact, it groans for the time when Jesus is going to come back and restore it and make it brand new. Destroy it and make a new. You imagine. God knows what he's doing He's near, he's exalted, he's worthy, he's glorious, he's holy. There's so many characteristics that I can talk about. If you don't grasp who the God is that we serve, you are missing out on so much. So that when we sing songs like what we just sang, it pours through your heart and you can't help but want to praise him. I'll tell you, some of the coolest things, experiences I have is sometimes just driving down the road and God will just put a song in my heart and I'll just sing and praise his name. People think I'm crazy because the radio's not even on. I'm just singing away. But I'm here to tell you, when you come into the presence of God, you come into the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. You stand before the one who is high and lifted up and his train of his robe fills the temple. And you stand before the one whose glory is all over this world. It'll change your life. It will absolutely change your life. But secondly, we need to have an inward vision. Look at verse 5 to 7. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Listen to his first word. Woe. Woe. It means grief, anguish, affliction, judgment. He understands that there's a consequence to his own sin. Do you see your own sin? Do you see who you really are? You see, I read a book one time and it said this. It says, there are three persons within us. There's the one we see or the one we think we are. There's the one other people think we are. And there's the one that God knows who we are. We think something completely different. Others think something completely different. We can even fool other people into believing that we're good people. But God knows who we really are. This guy in the presence of God, he says, whoa! He understood the consequences of his sin. So often we play with sin like it's not a big deal. Like it's not a big deal. Like God is going to accept it. God is going to be okay with it. That sin is just something that we do. It's just a part of our lives. And we go, well, we have a sin nature and it's just common and it's just going to happen. And so it's okay. God accepts it. God will forgive me. I won't ask him for permission. I'll ask him for forgiveness later. I'll just live the way I want to live. I'll just do the what I want to do. Isaiah comes into the presence of God and he goes, whoa. He sees himself from the eyes of God. Here's what we need to start doing. We need to stop looking at each other through our own eyes and stop looking at ourselves through our own eyes. How about if God gave us a vision of who we really are? How about if God let us gaze into how he sees us? Would we be in trouble? Would we cry out like Isaiah and go, whoa? And then he says this, he says, I am undone. I'm destroyed is what he declares here. I'm in grave trouble. I'm cut off. I'm going to tell you, 
I think if we as Christians really want to be where we need to be and do what we need to be doing, we need to, like the psalmist in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, we need to get serious like this. Listen to these words. I want you to listen, and I want want you to pray this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. Oh God, pierce through. Take your burning eyes, those flaming eyes. Pierce through and judge my heart. Bring it up to my mind. Help me to understand my iniquitous life. Show me my sin. Don't do it if you don't really want to. I'm serious. If you ask God to show you your sin, you better be ready. If you really say, God, I want you to search the recesses of my heart. Because let's be honest, there's places in our heart that every one of us have probably hidden from God or try to hide from God. But here's the thing. He sees. He knows. You can't hide from God. He knows everything. The thing is, is we've hidden it from ourselves. And we see ourselves as being something different than what God sees us as. But tell God to gaze in there and bring it to your knowledge so that you can repent and get right with him. I've been where a pastor was preaching on sin and I felt like he just kept cutting back layers of my heart. I'm here to tell you, if you open yourself up to God and you say, God, here I am, show me my sin. Speak to me, show me all the sins that I've ever committed that I have not repented of, the things that are holding me back from serving you completely and fully. God, if you'll just open my eyes and show me those sins so that I might repent of them, I promise you, if you sit there, he'll start peeling it back. But I'll be honest with you, many Christians don't want to do that. I don't want to do it. Yes, you can continue to go on being happy-go-lucky, but you'll never be revived until you allow God to really bring it to your mind. But let's be honest. I'm going to be honest with you right now. There are a lot of you in here who believe you're Christians and you're not. You've played with sin for so long. You've chosen sin over the Savior, but yet you're holding on to a time when you prayed a prayer and you got baptized in the baptistry. I'm here to tell you there's going to be a lot of people that are going to stand before God and he's going to say, depart from me for I never knew you. You're going to say, but Lord, I went to church. God, I sang when they sang. I even brought my Bible to church. I didn't watch the screen. I had a book in my hand. God, I did all these things for you. You know what he says? He says, it's the one who does the will of the Father that is my child. The problem is, is we've gotten to a point where we think it's a prayer, but it's the one who does the will of the Father. It is the obedient children who actually live for the Lord, who can know they're in God's hands. He says, woe is me, I'm undone. Now listen to this, because I'm a man of unclean lips. This is Isaiah the prophet. That's his gift, is preaching the word. He's a prophet. Do you know that for many of you, your greatest stumbling block and your habitual sin is your own gift that God has given to you? He's a prophet who preaches the word, who gives God's direction. And when he sees himself in the eyes of God, he says, I have unclean lips. God, the thing that you used me for, I've abused it. You say, how can you abuse the gift that God has given to you if you become prideful? If you're looking for the praise of man, 
Like Paul, here's the thing. When you do it for the glory of God, you don't worry about what anybody else thinks. Because to be honest with you, when you're doing it for the glory of God and you're doing it, you're going you're gonna to say things that people aren't going to like and they're not going to like you. And that's okay because I'd rather be approved in the eyes of God than in the eyes of man. He says, I have unclean lips. Now look at this, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. You know what Isaiah is saying there? He's saying, look, I thought I was better, but I'm just like them. Oftentimes we sit in church and we go, well, I'm better than old brother Terry. Right? I'm, I'm better than brother Ray over there. Uh, you know, I live better lives than they do. And I, if I'm living better than somebody, no, 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 no. And sometimes you'll sit in church. You'll be like, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that message. No, you were here to hear it because God wanted you here. And he's speaking to you. Stop worrying about anybody else. As I studied this, God just kept hitting me right between the eyes. He just kept hitting me. And he said, stop worrying about anybody else. Focus on yourself. Get your life cleaned up. Worry about you. Get before me and get right with me. And if you want to see revival, it starts with you focusing on you getting right with God. Don't worry about anybody else. If you get the plank out of your own eye, then you can help your brother with a speck. But let's start getting rid of the planks first. Revival needs to start in our hearts. And until we are holy like God, he needs to keep working on us. Woe is me. I have unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. You realize the shrine of our own glory we have constructed for so long crumbles before the holiness of Almighty God. But praise God, he's gracious, because look at verse 6. And one of the seraphim, one of the burning ones, flew to me having his hand, a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. Now you can imagine, at first I'm thinking, man, that's pretty cool. He's coming to, to pierce it, to take away his sin. And he is, but you've got to think about this from Isaiah's perspective. As this seraphim is flying to him with his coal, he's probably thinking, here comes the judgment. I'm getting ready to die. Don't think about it from what you know of verse 7. Think about it just from verse 6. Here comes God. He's getting ready to strike me down because I am sinful. Man, if we would start taking God serious like that about our sin, oh God, you could strike me down at any moment because I'm so sinful. You could judge me and you have every right to judge me because I am so sinful. You have every right to remove me, to send me away, to give up on me, to let me go because I have failed you again and again. I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve your mercy. I deserve to be burnt up in the presence of God. But instead of burning Isaiah up, he touches his mouth with it. He said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. If you cry out to God in repentance, I'm here to tell you, if you cry out in genuine repentance, the God we serve is oh so gracious, and his grace far exceeds any sin. You know what's interesting about this coal? The coals were burning on the altar, which means it was a sacrifice. God has already made the sacrifice for you. He's already paid for every sin you've ever committed. 
and he's ready to remove it. But some of you today, you're just fine in your own mind. But God doesn't play with sin, folks. God doesn't play with sin. And if you're unwilling to let him cleanse you of the sin that's in your life, and you say, well, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to live how I want to live, you are going to be the very one who's going to stand before God, and he's going to say, get out of my sight. i got a place for you to go. I want God to, I want God to discipline me when I do wrong. Because the Bible says he disciplines his children. He disciplines those he loves. And let me tell you something. There's not one of us in here, including myself, we have not arrived. We need to have an inward vision. We need to have an upward vision. And finally, verse 8, we need to have an outward vision. He said, also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here am I. Send me. Who will go? You realize this is a vision of hopelessness. The world is dying and going to hell. Do you believe it? Do you really believe it? Do you understand it? The Bible tells us in Matthew 9 verse 37. He says the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Do we really believe that people are dying every day and going to hell? Does it burden us? Does it bother us? Does it hurt us? Do we really believe hell is real? Do you believe that hell is real? I wish God would give every one of us a vision. Just a vision as as Jonathan Edwards preached one time, the people literally believed they were hanging over hell by a string. And they were hanging over this abyss as these flames were coming up and they felt like their feet were on fire as they were hanging on to that string. And they heard the souls that were down in there and they, were, they weren't partying, they weren't excited, they were screaming. Do we really understand how horrific hell is? I had one guy tell me, he said, I can't wait to go to hell and be with my friends and party. You won't find them and you won't party. You'll be a firecracker is what you'll be. Hell is real, people. In fact, the Bible talks more about hell than heaven. It's real. It is an eternal place for those who are damned in their souls because they chose not to live for Christ. Does it bother us? Maybe this will help. There are 15 million Jews in the world. There are 1.9 billion Muslims in the world. There are 500 million Buddhists in the world. 394 million Confucianists. 1.2 billion Hindus. And 1.2 billion people who claim to be non-religious. Every one of them that dies will find their place in hell. Some say, oh... We all worship the same God, then you're going to be with them. We don't worship the same God. We worship a unique God. We worship the one and only God. We worship the one and only Savior. 
49% in Lebanon are religious. 45% in Lebanon proclaim to be Christian. Do you realize that almost one million people die each week without Christ? Is it breaking your heart yet? You realize what's going on? Do you realize what's taking place? I want to read this little story because I feel like it's so important. A guy by the name of Charlie Peace was a criminal. Laws of God or man curbed him not. Finally, the law caught up with him and he was condemned to death. On the fatal morning in Armley Jail in Leeds, England, he was taken on the death walk. Before him went the prison chaplain, routinely and sleepily reading some Bible verses. The criminal touched the preacher and asked what he was reading. The consolation of religion was the reply. Charlie Peace was shocked at the way he professionally read about hell. Could a man be so unmoved under the very shadow of the scaffold as to lead a fellow human there and yet dry-eyed read of a pit that has no bottom into which this fellow must fall? Could this preacher believe the words that there is an eternal fire that never consumes its victims and yet slide over the phrase without a tremor? Is a man human at all who can say with no tears, you'll be eternally dying and yet never know the relief that death brings? All this was too much for Charlie Peace. So he preached. Listen to his On the Eve of Hell sermon. Sir, addressing the preacher, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it if need be on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. Are you condemned by a lost person? Do you sense the need that there needs to be an outward vision for our community? You say, we're in the South. That doesn't mean anything anymore. We just have more inoculated people to the gospel. You get that, right? We have more inoculated people. Inoculated means they think they're going to heaven. But they're already condemned to hell because they will not turn to God. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I beg of you, Christian, today, let it be you that says, here am I. I beg of you, Christian, don't be looking at other people's sins. Let God pierce into your soul and show you who you really are. Look up and see the almighty God that we serve, the one who is holy, 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 who doesn't play with sin but will judge sin. You see, if we want revival, our vision has to be changed. Like the blind man, when Jesus went up to him and he asked him, he says, what do you want? He says, sir, that I might see. My prayer today for you is you'll say the same thing. God, let me see. Let me see you for who you are. Let me see me for who I am. Let me see our community for who they are. Oh, God, give us a vision for revival. 
and start right here. Start right here. God, open my eyes to see you in all your glory. Open my eyes to see my sinfulness, my brokenness. And God, open my eyes to see this community and its need for Jesus and this world and its need for Jesus. God, give me eyes to see. Give us eyes to see.